Um, let's pray with our, the, the hymn of the day from today, yet another likely unfamiliar hymn that confesses great theology. In God, my faithful God, I trust when dark my road. Great woes may overtake me, yet he will not forsake me. My troubles he can alter. His hand lets nothing falter. My sins fill me with care, yet I will not despair. I build on Christ who loves me. From this rock, nothing moves me. To him, I will surrender. To him, my soul's defender. If death my portion be, it brings great gain to me. It speeds my life's endeavor to live with Christ forever. He gives me joy in sorrow. Come death now or tomorrow. O Jesus Christ, my Lord, so meek in deed and word, you suffered death to save us because your love would have us. Be heirs of heavenly gladness when ends this life of sadness. So be it then, I say, with all my heart each day. Dear Lord, we all adore you. We sing for joy before you. Guide us while here we wander until we praise you over yonder. <laughs> this is a great hymn. So be it then, I say. Like stanza five, it's like all these, the hardships of life, they come, death, sin, suffering, and the Christian looks at it and says, so be it, because I know God's, I'm on the rock, he's with me, he loves me, I'm, I'm going to be all right. Great hymn. It's fun, like, like I said the same thing last week, you're like, you, you sing, a, you've, you've sung hymns, and then like, for some reason, sometimes they just, they just hit you. Uh, a couple of reminders, um, the Church Family Sunday coming up in two weeks on All Saints Day. So next Sunday, Reformation Sunday, and then the week after that, All Saints Day. And uh, we'll be Church Family Sunday with one service at 9.30. One service, 9.30, followed by Bible study and Sunday school as, as regular. Um, but it'll, it won't be until, what, 10.45 or whenever we get in here, 11. So church at 9.30, probably go until 10.30-ish. And then we'll get started in here once everybody kind of settles down. So um, you know you'll be on time for Bible study next week because you're going to go to church and you follow the crowds in here and then you sit down and we get going. That's the idea. Um, also, just as a reminder, this seems like a silly thing to have to say, but it's important that you guys know that Pastor Schumacher and I will never, or Pastor Bartons, we're never going to send you emails asking for money or for banking information or something. So this is like to be, this is like this new thing. It's a, and it, and it's, it works, it's worked on many in our, many, a few in our congregation um, and they're always getting better at looking like us. So it used to be that they would say, it's an email from Pastor Klimmer, but the email would be like, it was not, doesn't look anything like our Bethany alias names. And, but they would sign it, Pastor Schumacher, Pastor Klimmer, and then people were, were getting duped by this because the, the emails seemed relatively innocent. Hey, I need, somebody's in need, we need a gift card, well, I'll reimburse you and all this. And no, it's never gonna happen like that. Um, and, if, and if for some reason you think it might be legit, call us, call Beth, call me, never, just, just don't do it. Just, you know, in fact, just say to me, it, let's, in a real situation, if I'm asking you for money and it's legit me, just say no, just to make sure. No, get your own money. <laughs> uh, but the, so this, this week, apparently they figured out a way to make it look like you, uh, to look like on the receiving end of the email 
that it actually it says like the legit email. It says like schumacher at bethanylcs.org, which is his email. But it's just the way that it looks when it comes into you. If you actually clicked on it, it actually was this other email that wasn't his. So it's getting quite masterful at this, this scheme of masquerading as the pastors. So um, yeah, when we, when we email you, if we, if, if we need you to give money to something, we'll at least have the decency of calling you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, just don't, please don't be a fall victim to that. And I'm sure you guys are facing it in so many emails. You get so many emails in a day and so many texts. They're the popular thing of you get a text message of, hey, somebody's hacked your Amazon. Click here to verify. Oh, I better click here, you know. We're not, we're not going to do that kind of stuff to you. So don't click on anything. We get a glance. You can click on that for now. All right. Luke um, 13 today. We actually finished Luke 12 finally last, last Sunday. And uh, the beginning of Luke 13 actually has some common themes with today's gospel reading of the two guys um, at the temple. One in repentance asking for forgiveness and the other being thankful that he's not like those other sinners over there. So we're going to look at the general ideas of repentance. That's really the main, the main driving theme today. Um, it's just fun to grab pictures. It's getting fun to, it's, it's fun, it's, it's fun to go through pictures and try to find pictures that capture um, the theme of the, the readings. So let's jump in here. Luke 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time... Who took, what? Now we got to stop already. At that very time, what's that? Whenever you, whenever you run into such things, especially in our, in our setting of, which has been a whole week since we talked about this last, let's remember at that very time, what very time? Well, let's look at the context. Just before in chapter 12, leading up to this, Jesus has been teaching a lot of stuff on anxiety, trying to remove from us this idolatry of our possessions. He talks about bringing not peace, but division. So this, the gospel that he's going to come into this world with is going to actually bring division both within us, within ourselves of saint and sinner, but then also because of the gospel being what it is, it's going to bring division to those who reject the gospel. And then most significantly for our context today, uh, in chapter 12, verse 54, he says, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say, hey, look, it's going to rain. And so also when the wind blows from the south, you say, hey, it's going to get hot. And it does. You hypocrites, you're really good at looking at the appearance of stuff around us in the sky and knowing what's about to happen. But you're not so good at doing that right now, are you? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny, which is gonna be hard for you to do because you're in prison. So this is a picture of the final judgment, the, the, the judgment on the last day and how we're to be settled with the accuser on, before the last day is to be forgiven by Jesus, to live a life of repentance. So this reality that there is a final judgment, there is a last day and all this, which leads us perfectly into chapter 13. So Jesus has just kind of talked about the, there's big events are happening. You can look at the world around you, see these events and, and know that these events mean something. And so the, the Galileans who are there say, hey, you mean a big event's kind of like this one? And they offer an example. So 
There's our context. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he gets into the parable of the barren fig tree, which we'll, we'll come back to. So first, just a, a quick note. I mean, we don't have a lot of record, at least in the commentaries where I, were, where I was looking at, of, of this specific occurrence of Pilate mingling the blood of the Galileans, but apparently it was, it was something that had happened right around that context of where Jesus was when it had happened. And so you have this concern that, okay, since Pilate has gone into the temple where these sacrifices are being done, and by the way, since it wasn't the high priest, it was like the Galileans themselves doing it, it was likely, the commentators say, Passover, one of the ones where the, where the laity were, were maybe more involved in the sacrifice. And then Pilate comes and kills them in the context of them offering the sacrifice, which is like totally forbidden by the, the law. I mean, think about... For the Jews, if they touch a dead body, is that good or bad? So like the uncleanness of death. So to actually take the uncleanness of death, but not just death, but also murderous bloodshedding death and throwing it on the altar with a sacrifice is just kind of like major sacrilege, de desecrating the, the altar, desecrating the sacrifices. Um, perhaps some had held the opinion that the Galileans, since they're from like further away from Jerusalem, further north, as you're, if, if you remember your Israelite history, the, on the north side of Israel is where you have the northern kingdoms, which are associated with like the fall, um, the fall of Israel uh, before the exiles. Remember, there, you had the big split. You had the, the United Kingdom under, under Solomon, and then Solomon dies. You have Jeroboam and Rehoboam fighting it out, and then half the kingdom, the northern kingdoms are the ones who divide. So when you think north of Jerusalem, north Israel, it's like, eh, those guys aren't, they're not really Jewish, at least not as much as us, because we live closer to the temple. So just think in the back of your mind, there, there's, that, there's that maybe common association at least with those people who live on the north side uh, near Galilee, north of Galilee. And so when they came down to the temple and offered their sacrifices um, and Pilate killed them, maybe they, maybe they deserved it in some way. After all, why would God, why would God allow such atrocity if not like because he's punishing the people? See? So Jesus picks up on this, this um, that, they're, that they're perhaps thinking that those who are, who are killed by Pilate were, were somehow guiltier or, or um, deserving of the death that they received. And so he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So just in reading the, the, the blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices, who did the sin there? Pilate. And Jesus flips it. He's like, I'm not, I'm not going to concern about Pilate. I'm, I'm digging behind why you're even asking this question. Why are you even worried about this? Because you're thinking the Galileans are somehow worse than, all, than everybody else because they suffered in such a horrific way. 
So is suffering and death a result of specific sin? This is really the first question in my handout. When terrible suffering and death occur by natural disaster or some human evil, are we to see it as God's judgment upon evil individuals? And the second, the second story he gives is, uh, is of the similar nature, the tower, following, the tower in Siloam falling and killing. So when, when suffering and death occurs, how are we supposed to think? How, we, how do we think about suffering and death if not specific punishment from God for our sin? Is it, is it possible for us to be suffering death because of, as a result of our sin? Well, just in general, death... Death in general is a result of sin and being in a sinful world. And all the suffering that we face in this world is a result of sin and being in a sinful world. Um, so we can say that corporately, but then when it, gets, when it gets personal to us and I face suffering and I face death or my loved ones face death, then I start trying to figure out what did I do to deserve this, right? And really you kind of know the answer and yet you really have... We have higher expectations. But we, 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 we think, I think, the flip side of that, that I, when I do face suffering in this life, it's because I, I merited it in some way. I did something to deserve this. Now, to be sure, there are certain sins that do bring about them like temporal results of our sinfulness, right? So like everybody who is like getting into the, the needle injecting drugs of the 80s before before everybody was aware of the AIDS epidemic and everything. So you see these diseases and also other addiction, alcohol addiction, and the death that, that can come, like various, all kinds of addictions that we can self-inflict death upon ourselves in some way. However, we also all know the guy who's been smoking since he was like 20 and now he's uh, still 100 and he's fine. Like, is that George Burns is always the classic picture of that guy? Like he's 103, smoking a cigar every day. Like, oh, maybe smoking is. Uh, but no, the idea is, Am I supposed to be thinking about suffering as a direct punishment from God for something that I've done in my life? If so, why? Or if not, why not? It's, it's, it's good to think through this now when you're not, you know, on death's doorstep. We live in a fallen world. So these things, these things are going to happen, right? So not just miss, so I think God even pushes it a step further. And this is where it becomes somewhat problematic for us is um, not only do, do misfortunes happen and death happen in this world, but also think when the devil goes to, to God to say, hey, have you considered your servant Job? He seems like he's got such great faith. It he wouldn't have such great faith if you took everything away from him. And what does God say? Have at, it. Have at it. And then he comes back because just killing off his family and taking all of his stuff wasn't, didn't do it. Now, maybe if I go after his body, so can I, can I attack him physically? So God did not inflict the suffering, and yet he kind of did. From our perspective, he could have stopped it. He could have said no. And that's where I think we, we join our prayers with the psalmist often where we're like, why, O oh Lord? 
Why, you, you could have stopped and you did it. Why are you, why are you bringing this punishment upon me, right? So we don't, we, you will all encounter such situations, whether in your own life or your own families and so forth. So it's nice to, ha- to be able to think this through and have an answer for it. So these, these terrible things happen, not because God is causing it to you necessarily, um, but that's not the answer you want to say. God knows these things are happening in this world. That's why Jesus died. So Jesus didn't die so that we wouldn't suffer in this life or that we wouldn't die. He suffered because he knows that in this sinful world, we would. And so we, we can get into ourselves into a lot of trouble when we start looking at things like, I mean, this is popularized by, what's um, a guy's name, Jerry Falwell and others. Like when, uh, I think Katrina, uh, Hurricane Katrina back in 2004, five, somewhere in there. And she, Classic insurance guys would know that. Five, for sure. Uh, the, so it, think about the picture of that. Like, New Orleans, of course New Orleans deserved that. Have you been to New Orleans? There's sinners everywhere. They're so much worse than me. Right? So they, you know, it's for, for us to look at you know, the prostitutes and the so the brothels and the psychics, the voodoo stuff and everything in downtown New Orleans, this is God bringing his judgment against those sinners who are worse than me. Thank God I'm not like those sinners. Enter today's gospel text, right? Um, so the Lord's not interested in us playing that game, but he does want us considering our own sin. And this was like of great concern for my daughters was how I was gonna unfold the snow white picture there on your handout. Um, what is that? So, so it's like, is, is Snow White like God? And the mirror is like, no, it wasn't going that way at all. But the idea, when you think about, when you think about uh, the evil queen in Snow White, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest? Who's the, who's the greatest at being beautiful? And we often take up the law and say, who's the worst sinner than me? It's, it's going to be somebody else. Somebody out there is worse than me. I'm always interested in, everybody else being sinful. Um, and yet Jesus is taking up the mirror and using it for mirrors, what, what mirrors are actually for. What do mirrors do? They show you what's actually there. It's you. Jesus is, whenever somebody brings a third person question to, whenever people bring a third person question to Jesus, are they, he, them, Jesus is, turns it into a second person. He's interested in you, you. You're the sinner. You're, you focus on yourself. And so he does here. Do you think that these Galileans are worse than all the others because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So no matter what you're thinking about why they died, they died as a result of their sin. Okay, fine, I'll even give you that. They died because of a result of their sin. It's gonna happen to you too if you don't stop sinning. So repent. So he's flipping the law on them. Oh, this is a terrible time. There's no way I can avoid death. So let's think there's some really interesting conclusions we can draw here. So if I do repent, what, what might I avoid? They suffered in this way. Do you think that the Galileans are worse than all the others because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So if you do repent, then you won't perish. 
likewise. So maybe I'll avoid, so I'll avoid being murdered at least, right? So is God making me a, a deal now? Is that what he's saying? So this is where it's helpful to think through the problem by which they perished. It wasn't just that they were murdered. He's getting at this idea of quick death, a death outside of repentance. And he's going to drive home the point here with this next parable. Because especially when we think about those people at the temple, though they died, did they really die? John, I think John 11, with the, though Lazarus dies, he is alive. Those who die in me, though they die, they live, right? So to die in a repentant life is to not die. So Jesus is getting at repentance. And so he brings this next parable. Now, just in case you thought, well, maybe those, you can blame Pilate for the death in the temple. So now he, say, he takes the, the human sinful evil factor out of it. And he says, or, so remember, they, they presented him with the Galilean situation and then he comes up with his own. How about those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders? Because before you might've said, well, maybe it wasn't God's fault. God didn't cause the murders that happened with the guys at the temple. That was all Pilate, he's evil. But now, so Jesus pushes it further and says, what about these guys that the tower fell on? So Keith or anyone else who is an insurance person, or if you've read your policies, if a tower falls on someone, what does that refer to? Act of God. An act of who? It's like Jesus is thinking ahead on this already. So he's like, when these, when these seeming accidents, these natural disasters occur, they're referred to as acts of God and it gives him the blame. So if you're trying to get God off the hook when Pilate killed the people in the temple, Jesus pushes it straight to God and says, how about the ones that God caused when the temple fell on them? Were they worse offenders? Were they being punished because of their sin in some way? And just have, it's pushing on them what they actually deserve. We don't deserve better than them. By the grace and mercy of God, maybe you haven't. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So the death to fear is, is an unrepentant death. They think that through. This is the, the gift. In fact, church history always refers to um, a, a lengthy death as a as a gift. And we often think the opposite. How do we all want to go? <laughs> like in our sleep. I don't want to know it's coming, right? Um, but so in the, in, the, in the history of Christianity, there's just been this sense of when I know death is, is drawing near and it seems like I have, I have time, what do I have time to do? Repent. Now we're going to get to what that means though. It's not like, so at the last... I need, what's the one final work I can do to make sure I don't go to hell? So we're going to unfold that because that's not what he's getting at here. But this fear of a, of a quick death is, is, a, is potentially a death outside of repentance. And that's a death to be feared. So Jesus is saying, fear death if it's not in repentance. But it, when you die in repentance, you don't die at all. Uh, so repentance in the Christian life is where we're going here. Let me make sure I hit my question. We take up the law and use it to judge others as worse than us. However, how is God using his law in the parable? So he's, he's going second person on it. You, 
You're, you think you're better than them. You think you deserve better. No, you deserve just as much or worse because of your own sin. So instead of taking up the law and judging everybody else around you, especially when bad stuff happens, they deserve it in some way. I, I, did, I did something better than them. That's a dangerous way to go because then it also slaps you on, in reverse. When you actually do get sick or bad stuff happens to you, you actually think you deserve it. Either way, we're thinking we deserve the good that we receive or the bad that we receive, or they deserve the bad that they received because they're worse than me, because that's the way we naturally want to use the law. In our sinful flesh, we always are picking it up and using it to judge everybody else and holding ourselves up in a higher light. And Jesus has no interest in that. He's just saying, you deserve no better. Unless you repent, you're going to like it's the same thing's going to happen to you. And it's a stark, it's a, it's a harsh slap. And that's the point of the law. So here's question number three. We're saved by grace. The word grace, all gift, through faith. All Jesus alone. Nothing in me. Right? So Jesus did it all or did most of it? So is Jesus waiting around for me to do something? No. That wouldn't be grace. So it's all Jesus. So then how is a Christian to think about repentance? Because is repentance not a work that we must do? So think about, so those, those people, or those terrible sinners, um, they need to repent. Salvation is all by grace, all by gift. And those people who are on the road to hell, they need to repent so that they can be saved. What have I just done? <laughs> well, yeah, that's certainly an issue there, right? But when we think about how we often think about maybe repentance, even in ourselves, as this one, this one action that I, that I still need to do. Like there's no, I, I say salvation is not contingent upon me, but effectively it is, because I still have to repent. But we're just not gonna call repentance a work. It's just the one thing I have to do so that I can be saved. <laughs> but then forgiveness is a gift. Forgiveness is all a gift if you repent. So now the forgiveness of God is contingent upon me. It is finished if, no, nope, Jesus, he, he put a period at the end of Tetelestai. It is finished. There is no if. But we can't repent if we don't have faith, and the faith is a gift. So the repentance comes out of the faith. Repentance is a gift of the Holy Spirit. I think that's where we're going, right? That's certainly where we're going. As we think about repentance, I mean, I, I, I know I've mentioned this before, but one of the best biblical pictures of repentance that we have is King David, maybe perhaps the most famous sin too. What's King David do before he became repentant? He's famous for Bathsheba, who's named after he saw her taking a bath? No. Bad joke. That was a dad joke. Um, so he sees Bathsheba. He has an affair with Bathsheba. He gets her pregnant and then tries to cover it up by getting Uriah to go back and do married things with his wife. And he wouldn't do it. 
And so, well, we got to cover this scandal up, and he has Uriah killed. So he kills Uriah. He's still, he still got all the, everything should be giving him tremendous guilt and shame, and he feel he does not have it. Until what? Nathan, Nathan the prophet. So Nathan is the Hebrew word gift. It's the same word. So, so even the, the Nathan, the prophet, is the very incarnation of bringing the gift of repentance to David. So Nathan shows up and he says, you're the man. <laughs> not, in the, not in the modern sense of the term, but he gives that parable of the, the guy who's got only one sheep. And there's a guy over here with a hundred sheep. And the guy with the hundred sheep comes over and takes the one sheep of the one poor guy and slaughters it. And David's like, that's a terrible thing. That guy deserves to die. And he says, you're the man. He took someone else's wife. And he's convicted by this. And he responds to what we sing every Sunday, divine service three at least, creating me a clean heart, O God. Psalm 51. So this Nathan coming to and engaging in conversation with King David is bringing the gift of repentance. And how does he do it? What, what word does he speak? At least initially, it's the word of law. Um, and it, but ultimately, it's, it's law toward the gospel. So repentance, we always, we always want to, and, and the, the next parable is going to really get to this. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and look at it, and we'll come back to finish talking about repentance. So the parable of the barren fig tree. He told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, which already makes you think, He's not a very good vineyard owner. Why isn't he planting vines in his vineyard? Whatever. Apparently, that was a common thing. I was, I was curious about that. I was like, did Jesus, was he trying to already put a spin there? But they said, no, it's common, especially if you've been to that part of the world. It's common to have fig trees growing in your vineyard for some reason. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let, let it alone this year also, until I dig, it, dig around it, put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So this is an, gives us a beautiful picture of repentance. So he said already twice leading up to this, these two smacks of unless you repent, you're going to perish. Unless you repent, you're going to perish. Now I'm going to talk to you, I'm going to talk to you about repentance. A man has a fig tree and it doesn't have the fruit. It doesn't have the fruits of repentance. And he, the owner of the vineyard, it's his vineyard, he says to the vine dresser, see the people are important here. So the owner of the vineyard speaks to the guy who's working on the vines and the fig trees. Look, I've been seeking fruit for three years, which already seems like he's been pretty patient. Three years he's waiting on fig trees for, to produce fruit? What, what does he think was going to change? Why didn't he just cut it down right away? But he didn't, and it's kind of where he it goes. It's been three years, I'm finally throwing in the towel, cut it down. It doesn't have the fruits of repentance, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? It's wasting the space. And that would be what we'd expect of any vineyard owner. He should have done it sooner, we might critique. And he, the vine dresser, answered, Sir, let it alone this year also. So that let it alone is the same Greek word, afiemi, 
which we say every, hopefully, day in the Lord's Prayer, where we say, forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our debts. That phrase is the same word, let it alone. So think, think about the difference in that translation, unfortunately. Isn't, isn't, isn't merely just let it be, but it's actually overlook this. Forgiven. Which gives us a quick insight in the parable, if we're doing a one-to-one, who's the vine dresser? Who's in the business of letting it alone? Jesus. Jesus is not in the cut it down business. He's in the let it alone business. Already answered one of the questions. Don't. Sir, let it alone this year also until, now I'm, wait, I'm expecting the tree to bear fruit. It's been three years. How is it going to change? Unless there's some sort of intervention. So it's not like some kind of a thing that the vine dresser or the owner comes up and starts yelling at the fig tree, right? To fix itself, to start doing more fruit. But the actual organic changing that occurs is, is operated by the vine dresser himself. He actually digs around it. He, he messes with the soil. He puts on the fertilizer. He does the stuff that brings about the fruit. And that has us seeing repentance as this wonderful gift of, yes, God wants me to have my, my, fruit, my faith has, bears fruit in this life. Uh, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, says John the Baptist. But that fruit itself is, is given to me as a gift by all working of the, the Lord's word. He, as he digs around us, he fertilizes us, and he generates the fruit within us. And if not, he says, if it should bear fruit next year, good, cool. If not, you, it doesn't say I'll cut it down. It just emphasizes all the more, you cut it down. Because I, Jesus, I'm not in the cut it down business. I'm in the let it alone business. I'm in the fertilize and manure and dig around it and get it to repent business. So it's not, we, we, can't, we cannot read this text in such a way that has us thinking that the tree can take any credit for the fruit that it bears. If it's up to the tree, the tree had been cut down multiple years ago. And yet, because of the mercy and the working of this vineyard owner, or the, uh, the vineyard, vine dresser, it is brought to fruit. Now, let's see. Um, sometimes you'll hear repentance referred to in a narrow or a wide sense. So, and I, I don't know if that's a helpful distinction necessarily, but... Some will approach repentance as saying there's unbelievers and then believers. And so when Jesus is saying, like, repent in this situation to these people, like, hey, if you don't, if you don't actually, if you're not having faith and you die, you're going to die eternally. But so when you die, you want to live. So you need to repent. That is, become a believer in Jesus. Um, well, okay, fine. You can say it that way. But even so, like, how... Becoming a believer in Jesus isn't like a decision. He's not, he's not selling a car. I've got door number one and door number two. You have to choose which door to pick. So God's actually giving the gift of faith to the unbelievers. But it also works, and I think it more, more helpfully, as we think about repentance, not just from unbelief to belief, 
but the ongoing Christian life of repentance. Because especially this word repentance gets thrown around like with the, with the picture at the bottom of your handout, page one. You ever see people like this? When you're trying to walk down downtown Naperville with your little girls and you see some guy with a giant poster, <laughs> the repenter pair outside of every football stadium, like there's always that guy with this giving a wonderful testimony for Christianity, right? It's helpful for you to remember that your non-Christian friends think about you as this guy. At the game conventions? Repent. That's right. That's hard. So this, so this whole idea of repentance, I think, is missing the point for I mean, a number of, a number, I mean, it's not a wrong message. Jesus himself says repent or perish in this text, right? But is the poster board repent or perish actually delivering the goods that actually bring about the gift of repentance? So as Jesus tries to bring about repentance with individuals, he's actually walking up to people and having conversations. He's engaging um, with his word, which isn't just some random guy's word, by the way. It happens to be the incarnate son of God. So when he speaks, his words are actually fertilizing the ground, tilling the soil, bringing about fruit. So too for us, when we speak to one another with God's word, it's the word that does the thing. Um, as the prophet says, the word doesn't return void. Um, so, I, so the ongoing life of the Christian is not one of sinlessness, but one of daily repentance. Which is why we, if you ever wonder why we um, start, at least with our, the architecture of our, of our sanctuary lends itself to this, we have confession and absolution. It would make more sense to do it in the chancel because we're higher and can be seen easy, more easily perhaps. But we do it at the font because the life, the daily life of the baptized Christian is this daily drowning of the old Adam in repentance and the daily growth of the new man in faith. Every day returning to this. And so that goes hand in hand with confession and absolution as we stand before God, confessing our sin and being forgiven. That is repentance. To confess our sin, but I cannot know what sins to confess unless God had told me what they are. And what does he do to tell me what they are? He has his law preached to me. So he's the one who convicts me of my sin, which brings about contrition. That is this acknowledgement and despair of my sin, that I have this problem. And I, what do I do with this problem? I hand it over to him. Uh, and he forgives. That's, that's repentance. But you'll see uh, there's different pictures of repentance out there in Christianity as it's talked about as if you're, if you're repentant, you go from you're sinning here and now you're not sinning. So repentance looks like you saying, this is bad, I'm not sinning anymore. Now it's not all wrong because from repentance comes the fruits of repentance. But God, Jesus himself calls them the fruits of repentance. Fruits. Fruits grow on a good tree. 
The tree has to be made good, and he's the one who brings about the fruit growing. So repentance is not something that's up to you, but it's God actually convicting us of our sin, turning us back to him for forgiveness. And then from that life of faith grows fruit. But if repentance is defined as not sinning, then I'm always perplexed that I'm, that I'm not repentant. So when Jesus says something like, repent or you will likewise perish, and you think repent means stop sinning, then you, the law does its job on you and you think, well, I'm gonna, there's no hope for me. I can't stop sinning. And there's this total despair, which is exactly what Luther was reacting against when he renailed the 95 theses. The, first, the very first theses was, when, God, when, Jesus said, when the Lord Jesus Christ said to repent, what he meant was that one's entire life should be a life of repentance. Not that there's this one time I'm gonna repent, and if I really, really meant it, then I'm never gonna sin again. But it said I'm daily living in this repentant rhythm of falling into sin because I'm a sinner, God coming to me, the vine dresser, condemning me of my sin, tilling the soil, turning me back to him in repentance as a gift, and for, he's forgiving me. And from this rhythm comes the fruits of faith, which is stopping the sin. And then I, I get like a, like a dog returns to his vomit, says the scriptures, I return to my sins. And what does he do? Think of the, so it, in fact, coming up in Luke 15 is the, the, the three best parables on repentance, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal sons. So the lost sheep is this great picture of the sheep wanders off. And what does he do? Goes and gets it. The coin gets lost. What's he do? Goes and finds it. So this, and, and when the sheep is found, there's rejoicing in heaven over those who have repented. So it's being found, being sought after, being turned back. So now it has us thinking about repentance in a completely different way than the fire and brimstone picture on your handout here as this, I'm going to somehow bring about the repentance that I seek with fear, right? Now, true, the law does its work, and the law is clear, and it's the law that convicts of what sin is, but the message of repent or perish is an incomplete message at best, and I think it's perhaps even, I mean, I, I think it's fair to call it maybe un, unhelpful, especially in our modern context when people don't know the greater, the greater narrative the greater conversation. So if we're wanting to have an individual conversation with people, that's why you also see guys out on the street with a big sign that says, Jesus loves you, or Jesus loves sinners. As in fact, there's a friend of uh, uh, Dr. Francisco, who's a, he's a street apologist at UCLA. So he like has this, I forget, it's a PhD in something. And he's a single dude, so he's got all this extra time. So what's he do? He just goes like on campus at UCLA with a giant, with a body sign on him that says, Jesus dies for sinners. And he just walks up to people and starts talking to them. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's a pretty, it's a totally different approach than repent or perish. But the, repent or perish is true. And it's certainly the preaching of the law. Um, let's see. So, so we don't want to, so our death, to, so for us, I'm going to hand out there number four, to die in repentance uh, what does it mean to die in repentance? So the Lord, the Lord wants us 
to live and die in this life in a constant awareness of our sin. Not so that it would bring us to despair, but so that it would drive us to him. Or so that it would bring us to despair enough to drive us to him. So that on my deathbed, I'm able to say, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm dying because I'm a sinner. But Jesus only died for sinners. So my death, my death is the greatest evidence for my sin. And my sin is the greatest picture of the thing that Jesus died for. So my death itself is a reminder that Jesus died for me because I'm a sinner. See? Back your handout. Uh, let's see. I answered all these questions already. Who's the vine dresser? Is the vine dresser in the cutting? Yeah, okay. We got all those. So I put a few quotes on here from the confessions for us because I think... Um, when the confessors are putting this together in the, con in the context of the Roman Catholic um, blow up of the Reformation, repentance was a big, it was like with the central deal because is repentance something that I have to engender in myself? It's the one work that I need to be able to do. If I really repent, if I'm really repentant, it's something that I've done, I can take credit for it. So the small card articles put it, that's kind of a longer quote, are we doing time? Oh, we're beautiful. Small Cult Articles, Part 3, Concerning Repentance. Now, this is the thunderbolt of God. He's in the context talking about the law. By means of which he destroys both the open sinner and the false saint and allows no one to be right, but drives the whole lot of them into terror and despair. This is the hammer of which Jeremiah speaks. My word is a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. This is really what it means to begin true repentance. Here a person must listen to a judgment such as this. You are all of no account, whether you appear publicly to be sinners or saints. You are nothing. You must all become something different from what you are now and act in a different way, no matter who you are now and what you do. You must be as great, wise, powerful, and holy as you could want. But here, no one is righteous, etc. So the law comes to us and says, you have to be, you have to be a full fruit, awesome, sinless tree, and you are not. You have to be something different which is a condemning hammer of the law. To this office of the law, however, the New Testament immediately adds the consoling promise of grace through the gospel. But where the law is exercised, such as office, uh, such an office alone, oh, for, for where the law exercises such an office alone, without the addition of the gospel, there is only death and hell, and the human creature must despair, like Saul and Judas who having nowhere to turn, killed themselves. As St. Paul says, the law kills through sin. Moreover, the gospel does not give consolation and forgiveness in only one way, but rather through the word, sacraments, and the like, as we shall hear, so that, the God, so that with God there is truly rich redemption from the great prison of sin. So the idea of repentance being this acknowledgement of my sin brought about upon me by the preaching of the law and the being forgiven by Jesus versus the being made aware of my sin and stopping sinning. So that in our, in our understanding of repentance, it is including the forgiveness of sins. It's being convicted of my sin, receiving the forgiveness of sins. It's confession and absolution in action. It's the daily rhythm of the Christian life. I'm a sinner. Lord, help me. He's forgiven my sin in Christ, constantly in that rhythm. Augsburg Confession puts it a little bit more concisely. 
Now, properly speaking, true repentance is nothing else than to have contrition and sorrow or terror about sin. So that's being convicted of my sin. And yet, at the same time, to believe in the gospel and absolution that sin is forgiven and grace is obtained through Christ. Such faith, in turn, comforts the heart and puts it at peace. Then, improvement should also follow, and a person should refrain from sins, because it's bad. So the, the, the sin that we do is actually hurting us, and it's hurting everybody else. But you're not going to get a person to stop sinning by, by only telling them to stop sinning. You have to make a new tree. So Jesus is cutting down the tree and making a new one. For these should be the fruits of repentance, as John says in Matthew 3, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Rejected here are those who teach that whoever has once become righteous cannot fall again. So this is the, if you've heard of, uh, I mean, evangelicals will put it in different ways. So like, if, if I have to make a decision for Jesus, if you're in the, like, the evangelical community, decision theology is big. So I have to accept Jesus into my heart. And once I've accepted Jesus into my heart, and this is my life of repentance, I'm now repentant, and now I can be baptized. Because baptism is not the thing that actually gives repentance and faith. It's my first act of obedience as a Christian. So a person would, would, would accept Jesus into their heart, saying the sinner's prayer or whatever, and then be baptized as an outward expression of their faith, but not as a means of grace, as we understand it. And then, shockingly, they fall into sin again, which we are not surprised by. Like, that's why we start off every service confessing our sin right away. But if, you're, if your system says, if I'm truly repentant, I don't do that sin anymore, then I doubt, that, was I really repentant when I, when I accepted Jesus the first time? Maybe not. I wasn't, I wasn't serious enough about my faith. So now I'm going to re-accept Jesus, rededicate my life to Christ, which also then means I have to be re-baptized because the last one didn't count because it was never God anything. It was never about God doing something to me anyway. It was about me doing something for him. And it didn't count because I wasn't sincerely repentant then. What a terrible way to live. This is like two-thirds of Christendom thinks about repentance like this. So when we think about what is repentance and, and uh, what is the life of faith, we, we use the same language, but are thinking about different things. And lastly, in the apology, um, for these are the two chief works of God and human beings, to terrify and to justify the terrified or make them alive. As the entire scripture is divided into these two works, one part is the law, which reveals, denounces, and condemns sin. The second part is the gospel. That is the promise of grace given in Christ. This promise is constantly repeated throughout the entire scripture. First is given to Adam, later the patriarchs, then illuminated by the prophets, and finally proclaimed and offered by Christ among the Jews and spread throughout the entire world by the apostles. For all the saints have been justified by faith and the promise and not on account of their own attrition or contrition. So the goal of the Catholic in the Catholic system at the time was for me to go to confession and try to like, I have to be fully contrite. I have to feel sincerely in the depths of my heart, this fear for my sin. And if I haven't actually felt it bad enough, then the forgiveness doesn't count. So when the priest gives you like 
10 Hail Marys and whatever, it, does, it still doesn't do you any good unless, you're, unless your pain, your personal fear is sincere enough. So you're constantly looking at yourself and saying, am I really sorry for my sins? Am I contrite enough? Am I truly repentant enough? Looking at myself and trying to bring about some sort of fear or despair or sadness or guilt because of my sin. I'm trying to do it myself. Think about the fig tree. How does God bring about the contrition? He's sprinkling fertilizer on it. That is his word. So God's doing the contrition thing when he speaks his word, of, when he nathans us with his repentance. He speaks his word of law and gospel to us and turns us back to him in repentance. So it's not about whether or not I'm, how sincere I am, because you can look at yourself and ask yourself this question. Are you as sincere? Are you completely sincere when you confess your sins to God? So you take up that sincere question and you, you hold it up against your life. And what is the law's job? To convict of you're not being adequate enough. So if I want to make, if I want to make my repentance as something I can cling to, and I say, look how repentant I am, then the law is going to come to you and say, but are you sincere enough? Did you really mean it? And if you really meant it, then why did you, as soon as you walked out of the sanctuary, say those mean things, think those mean things, do those mean things? To start. Maybe it happened before you even finished confession and absolution. Maybe during confession and absolution. Maybe confession and absolution actually gave you some bad ideas. If it's up to you and your sincerity, you're out of luck. And that's the despair that the law is trying to drop us to. So a beautiful picture of repentance here being fully a gift to us by God in the, in the parable of the barren fig tree. If you think you're better than everybody else, repent unless you likewise perish. And Jesus is doing the repentance as he's even telling this parable, as he's giving the gift of the, as talking about the, the building falling on people and telling people to repent because of it, he's giving the gift of repentance. So we, we give thanks to our Lord for him daily, turning us from repentance back to him, um, that we would receive his forgiveness and live in the joy of daily, the daily forgiveness is the daily knowledge that he's forgiving my sin um, that I daily keep committing. Next week, we'll pick up with verse 10, the woman with a disabling spirit. The Lord be with you.